Welcome to episode 33 of Behaviorally Speaking, a podcast featuring board-certified behavior analysts Angela Nelson and Kristen Bondi. On this episode, they'll talk with two guests, Jen and Maria, about some of the most commonly asked questions by parents about special education. And now, here are your hosts, Angela Nelson and Kristen Bondi. Hello and welcome to our 33rd episode of Behaviorally Speaking. I'm one of your hosts, Angela Nelson, a board-certified behavior analyst and mother of two. And I'm Kristen Bondi, also a board-certified behavior analyst and mother of three. Hey, Angie. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Still wearing a sweater weather over here in Florida, even though it's pretty hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so embracing it. Yeah. it's uh, We're getting there. We're, we're making the, the trek towards springtime. But yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we have a, a really cool topic today with some special guests. And yeah. before we, we do some introductions, um, what are we talking about today and, and why are we doing this? So we are going to be talking about navigating the world of special education, which is a very, very important topic and one that we discuss every day at work uh, with our the family center support. <laughs> the thing is, special education... Um, there's a lot of really amazing resources and tools and supports, um, but it's not always intuitive um, how we get those supports, the processes that we go through, um, you know, diagnosis uh, processes, and and just in general, you know, knowing how to navigate that stuff is not stuff that we just naturally know, right? And and you have to right. kind of sometimes seek out those answers, and uh, so we're going to break it down for families that uh, might be needing these services or wondering about these services today with some special guests. Yeah. Yeah. So we're really excited to have two special guests here, uh, two of our board certified behavior analyst colleagues, actually, and both of them have been here before. So you might recognize the names or the voices. So we have our colleague Maria Wilcox and also Jen Wilkins joining us. So uh, do you guys want to just give a quick intro to the audience for those of you who may not have listened to the one that you were on before? And we could start with Maria. You want? Sure. Hi. Thanks again for having me. Yes. Uh, so I'm a board certified behavior analyst, like Kristen said, and I'm also a special education teacher by training. So this is my 15th year as a classroom support person. I, I don't directly teach anymore, but I work in special education in a large school district in Colorado and talk all things sped all day long. We're <laughs> happy to have you. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Jen. I'm glad to be back. Thank you guys for having me. Um, like Maria, my background is also in special education. Um, I was a teacher, a uh, special education teacher for many, many years in the school districts um, and did that for a while before I came here to rethink. And I'm also a board certified behavior analyst as well, like all you ladies. Awesome. We're excited to have you. We're pretty excited to be good. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> Okay, cool. So yeah, I guess let's just dive right into the first question. So we did prep ahead of time with Jen and Maria, came up with some really good questions, kind of an amalgam of questions that we get from parents a lot. So hopefully this is helpful for everybody today. We're going to dive in. We're first going to talk with Maria and Jen, definitely jump in where you can. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of the provision of services by age, kind of more or less walk us through 
um, services that exist in special education based on the child's age? Yeah, a great place to start. So I think the easiest way to to think about it is through the lifespan. So we have to start ages zero to 21. And that's where the, the federal law, IDEA, covers special education services. And if we think about breaking that down even further, um, we can start with birth to age two. Um, and I always recommend to parents, if you have a concern between birth to two, bring it up with your pediatrician, your nurse practitioner, nurse practitioner, if you go to a clinic, anybody who is a medical provider, let them know your concerns. We always tell parents it's never too early to bring those concerns up. And you know, if, if you're a first-time parent or a multi-time parent, every child is different and develops differently. A lot of kids are identified right at birth um, if they have like a significant um, uh, developmental disability that they're born with or there's something that happens um, right at birth. They're often identified right then or shortly thereafter. But if that doesn't happen, they go through a process um, through what we call early intervention. And um, each state has an early intervention office. So a quick Google search will tell you, hey, I live in XYZ state. This is my early intervention office. And there's generally a number that you can call either regionally or for the whole state. And they'll point you exactly where you need to go. Um, Services for zero to two generally are covered by what's called an um, individualized family service plan or an IFSP. And those services can range from a lot of different things, just kind of depending on what your child's needs are. And um, they're very family centered because your kid at those ages spends their most time with you, right? They don't they don't probably go very many places other than maybe daycare or childcare, um, a grandparent's house or another caregiver's place that they'd spend their time at. So very family centered. Um, and then moving kind of forward from there, we have preschool. And preschool is where we catch a lot of kids um, that might need additional supports, might need what we call special education services um, for preschool with a disability. And this is kind of ages three to five. So IFSPs are really, they transition nicely into that that preschooler with a disability kind of age bracket. Um and then it, it, we can also identify kids here as well. And I always like to tell parents, this is free of charge. You do not need to pay for this. You can absolutely go through your doctor if you want to get an outside evaluation. Um, but you are you are eligible to get a, a child find evaluation through your local school district or administrative unit, absolutely free of charge. And the best way to go about that is usually a written letter. Um, I know it sounds kind of antiquated, like, oh, I need to write a letter to do this. But um, <laughs> what it does is it creates a paper trail. So you have kind of documentation that I'm requesting this and would like um, would like this evaluation. And child find offices are, they're actually like a really lovely place to go. They're, they're generally staffed by a dedicated team that that's all they do all day, every day is get to hang out with preschoolers and evaluate them for for needs that they might have that might impact their education down the road. Um, so it can look a lot of different ways. They might look at their speech needs, if they're having difficulty communicating. They might look at their fine and gross motor skills. How do they pick up things? How do they, um, you know, write with a crayon? That sort of thing. If they're if you're having some behavior concerns, you might have somebody that looks at behavioral needs. Um, and that that will yield a, an IEP or an individualized education plan, which then takes us into our elementary years up through high school. So that's our five through um, five through eighteen, sometimes twenty one, and we'll kind of talk about that last little bit. Um, but that five through twenty one is the IEP. So that's our elementary school age years. That's where we're really looking at um, 
special education services through the public school system. And it's really important to remember um, that this is how kids access the academic environment. And IEP sort of sets them up for, for that success. So thinking about uh, if they need assistance communicating, what do their speech goals in the school system look like? If they need um, motor motor goals, what do their occupational and physical therapy goals look like in the school system? If they need help with academics, what do those goals look like delivered by a special ed teacher? Um, so an IEP is reviewed annually, and um, each year the school team will say, this is the progress made on these goals that we've set. They'll write new goals. And then every three years, the school will reevaluate your child to um, say, yes, they still are eligible for special education services, and this is what our plan is moving forward. Um, again, all of this is free of charge to you. So um, you can ask at any time and the school will respond. They have a couple of different responses that they'll give you. We can talk about that some more. Um, and, you know, at, at any time you can request an evaluation if you already have an established IEP or if you have a concern. Um, and then I, I promised we'd talk about that last little bit, so that kind of 18 to 21 bit, and that's what we call transition services. That's when kids are about to age out of school and move into whatever magnificent thing comes next in their life. And not every kid qualifies for 18 to 21 services, but it really is based on what are their goals that the IEP team, who parents are a part of, um, set for them when they're in school and when they're getting closer to graduation. Do they need additional supports from the school system? So that's kind of the IEP process in a nutshell. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot. That's like a treasure trove of information. I actually have a follow-up question. So, um, or I guess I want to make sure that I understood correctly. So zero to two, you're going to your medical provider, whoever that person may be. Um, sounds like when they hit three, you had mentioned child fine in the school system. Where So would they Google child fine or would they just walk into their local school? What What is, where do they actually go if let's say their child is now three? Yeah, great question. Great follow-up question. So um, you could really do the first and, and just Google child find for if you know your local school district or kind of greater regional school system in your area, you can Google that. Um, your doctor's office usually will will know too. If you say, what's my child find office, they, okay. they can point you toward that. It's a pretty well um, oiled machine in terms of that early intervention because we want to catch kids early. We know early intervention is key. Mm -hmm. So most people who work with the younger crowd are very well versed in the, in the resources that are, that are available. Um, I, I probably wouldn't walk right into the office and ask, like, hey, I'm here for child find. Um, but if you did, it actually happens at our child find office more than you would think because we have a big sign that says child find. But um, I think the, the there's generally a process for getting an appointment and getting those those requests in um, so that they can follow what they need to do to make that happen efficiently. Awesome. Yeah. To know that that's available. <laughs> I know. Yeah. All good information. Um, so maybe kind of a follow up to that, but piggybacking off of it. Um, so once, you know, we kind of talked a lot about services by age, but maybe breaking it down a little bit further. And I get asked a lot from parents, okay, well, my child's in preschool, but they're moving into elementary school. And so what does that look like for them? And how does that process work? Do things just automatically switch over? So there's lots of questions with that. So Jen, do you have any, anything on that you want to add? Yeah, definitely. Uh, same Kristen, in terms of talking with a bunch of parents about Kind of that transition right between early intervention or or uh, zero to two and then going into to school age or as maria was talking about at three you can start accessing school age services so if your child 
uh, has already been accessing early intervention services uh, through your state. Um, awesome. But how does that transition work from early intervention services into the school system? Um, I always talk with parents, you know, around the age of two and a half, go ahead and start getting that paperwork ready and sending it to um, your local school district central office. As a parent, you can go ahead and write that letter and, and request that educational evaluation, be able to provide all of that um, information from your earlier intervention services and reports to the school system. So um, being able to find that central office of your local public school system and starting that at age two and a half so that by three, and once they turn three, that will be a nice seamless transition and there won't be any um, drop in services, if you will. Your child can go ahead and start accessing those based services at three. Um, if your child is two and a half and you haven't been accessing early intervention services, um, you've already been talking with your pediatrician and kind of talking about your concerns, again, go ahead and reach out to your school district and, and um, make that formal request for an educational evaluation um, and assessment so that as your child turns three and all of that could, could start, those services could start. Um, because at that sort of two and a half to three years of age, uh, you know, if there are concerns at that time and we haven't been accessing early intervention services, it's good just to go ahead and start with those school-based services because we know that that's going to be coming up in six months um, versus, you know, kind of getting started with early intervention and then being done with that, you know, in a, a four to five month time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that's how far I recommend to go to the school then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Plan ahead. These things mm -hmm. don't just happen in, you know, like the next day. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. So that actually takes us into our next question. Um, and we'll kick it over to Maria. So continuing on with what Jen had shared, what if your child is already established in elementary school? So it's not a transition from preschool to elementary, but what if they're already in elementary school? What does that kind of look like? Sure. So if they're already in elementary school and have an IEP or they're in elementary school and no IEP, what do we do? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Yeah. Okay. I mean, how do we yeah. pursue that if we're recognizing or the teacher's recognizing some issues and maybe they're already in third grade? Yeah. Yeah. That can be really stressful. I get this parent question from parents quite a bit. So a couple things can happen. Uh, having a good relationship with your child's teacher is, is really important because that communication between home and school is key if your if your teacher brings up concerns you want to hear that from them um, schools have a really robust uh, progress monitoring system usually within their building um, by lots of federal mandates that has to has to occur so they're they're pretty good usually about um, being able to notice deficits or things that are happening where we might need to act and bolster services a little bit more or notice like hey this kid needs a little bit more instruction. Um, so I can talk a little bit about that process, but before we get there, if you as a parent have concerns about how your child's performing as a third grader, it's always within your rights as a parent, again, to request that that special education evaluation from the school. Um, I, again, I always suggest to put it in writing so it, it follows the proper channels. Um, and I think one of the frustrations that I hear a lot from parents is that it kind of feels like this is gatekeeping special education, like, oh, I have to like write a letter and then I have to wait for a person to receive the letter and then approve the letter like oh this is I have to go through all this process and it's really not designed to be like this sort of um you know jumping through lots of hoops to get to a certain place it's really so that schools can follow a process and we're making sure that all of the layers of support are in 
workplace and that your child has ha received all the education and instruction that he or she um, should have received before we say, wow, this isn't working, we might need to boost this up to, to where the child needs an, an IEP or an individualized education plan. So uh, it's important to just kind of not look at it as this like bureaucratic way of getting something accomplished. It really is designed to be a process. And sometimes you'll hear it called um, multi-tiered multi systems of supports or MTSS um, or response to intervention RTI. So you might hear a school say, oh, we have an MTSS plan or we're going to have an MTSS meeting. Mm -hmm. what, what is that? So <laughs> um, education uses lots of acronyms. I sometimes joke that it's like you need a dictionary to just be able to talk to your teacher's job. Your teacher. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that means. Um, so it's it's okay to ask, like, I have no idea what MTSS is. Um, and what they might do is pull together a team of people from across the school building, even the district. So they might have the classroom teacher come. If they have a reading specialist in the school or for the district, they have a math specialist. If they have a behavior specialist, um, they might have a person within their building that does tutoring or kind of tracks all the state and local assessments that they do. And they'll have the team come together and, and your parent voice is most important than that because we want to hear your concerns. What are you worried about? What are the teachers worried about? What have we done? Um, where are we seeing progress going? This should be a very um, data-driven meeting. So there should be some different types of scores shared and interpreted with you. If they just read scores to you, make sure you're asking questions like, what does that score mean? Mm -hmm. um, so we can make sure you fully understand the where your child is and if they do have gaps in their instruction or gaps in their where they should be if they're in third grade um we, we just want to make sure that you understand that um and kind of how this mtss process works is that if over time we're seeing progress it's just not maybe at like the rate that we anticipate we might keep a, a child in mtss for a while longer it's generally kind of time sensitive where we don't just try something and say oh it didn't work we might try it for six to eight weeks come back again and, and say like, okay this this did work we're seeing that progress we're going to keep this child at this tiered level of instruction or if we're like wow this is this in this intervention that we tried did not work we're actually maybe seeing um, the child backside a little bit or just stagnant in their growth then we would say okay as a team parents included in that team we're ready to move forward with a special education evaluation to determine if there's another type of instruction or educational accommodations that need to be put into place for this child within the school environment. So sometimes schools will have you go through that MTSS process first, which can feel frustrating, mm -hmm. um, but it is all part of the process just to make sure your child's truly getting what they need in the education environment. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's such a good breakdown because I probably would probably would have been the parent going, what's MTSS? No. I don't know. <laughs> There's so many acronyms to remember. Uh, so that actually feeds really nicely into our last question in this kind of evaluation section. Um, so Jen, if you want to walk us through a little bit about the difference maybe between that special education evaluation that Maria was just talking about and then like a formal medical diagnosis. I know they're different and a lot of times parents don't know where do we go, where do we start, do we do both, do we do one? So if you want to just explain that a little bit for us, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely another topic that I talk with a lot of parents about and kind of helping them understand a little bit about the differences between the two and and kind of the different paths and outcomes that come from both of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so to the example that you guys were all just talking about, you know, maybe your kiddo, it's, they're in third grade, 
You're starting to see challenges in the school with focus and attention. You're also having a hard time maybe with homework at home, getting them to focus, pay attention. Um, so you might have already started that uh, process in communication with school. Um, and maybe now it's time to do the educational evaluation, as Maria was talking about. And as she's mentioned before, you, you have that right to, to ask for that educational evaluation as a parent um, that is free of cost. That's really going to help your kiddo access um, accommodations um, and other types of services and supports, potentially special education services and supports for um, thriving academically. Um, the difference now between that and a medical evaluation, um, same thing. So you can go to, as Maria's talked about before, go to your pediatrician, talk about your concerns with attention and focus, for example, um, and talk about potentially getting a medical evaluation. Um, from there, uh, your pediatrician might refer you out further for to another professional. Um, but let's say that the medical evaluation came back with a diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, that would be helpful for you as a parent if you wanted to consider medication management later on. Um, so getting that medical evaluation will allow you uh, to be able to access, right, uh, a professional that could help you with medication management um, versus the educational evaluation through the school. We're really just focusing on making sure your kiddo is thriving at school, um, accessing the academic curriculum and getting accommodations that, and, and specialized services that they need. Um, so parents uh, can do both, actually. Um, sometimes parents will be like, well, which one can I do? And actually, you you can do both. It kind of just depends on, um, you know, again what what you're looking for in terms of outcomes and 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 um, you know your bandwidth, right? So some parents might choose to do one and then the other right afterwards, uh, just because of their schedule. And then some might want to do it both simultaneously at the same time. And you can do that as well. Another example in terms of a medical evaluation. So let's say that your child was medically diagnosed um, on the autism spectrum. So uh, from there, you're able to access um, applied behavior analysis or ABA services through your insurance. So that's another reason why we might want to get a medical evaluation right um, uh, so that we can access some additional services. Um, then with the school, right, we might request an educational evaluation. You know your child was diagnosed on the autism spectrum, and we also need to get some supports at school and make that request. Um, so again, that's where we would have uh, access to both a medical and an educational evaluation at the same time, just having different outcomes from both. Mm -hmm. That's good to break it down and kind of understand why we might do one, the other, maybe concurrently staggered. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, we are, Kristen, as you mentioned, we're kind of wrapping up that segment in terms of assessments and so on and evaluation. So we're going to go into a new segment now, segueing a bit. This question is back to you, Jen. And we're wondering if you can explain the difference of the acronyms <laughs> IEP versus um, something what we oftentimes hear of as a 504 plan. Yeah, definitely. So an IEP or an individualized education program, um, that uh, is a specific uh, plan, uh, a document, it's a legal document uh, that a child 
who is found eligible through the valuation process that we were just talking about, if they're found eligible to access special education services, um, they would then uh, be provided an IEP. Um, and what the IEP does is it allows your child to access the instruction and curriculum is specialized to what they need to thrive to learn. Um, so that is a little bit different than, let's say, what's called a 504 plan. Um, a 504 plan is, is not as detailed as an IEP. It is really a plan that just lays out different accommodations so that your child can access the general learning curriculum, but just might need some extra accommodations to thrive with that. So for example, in a 504 plan, it might be preferential seating. Um, it might be taking tests, for example, in a separate room to help with focus and attention versus in an IEP, um, what's happening there is there's special, very specialized goals that um, are written out for your child. Um, of course, as a parent, you are involved in that process. And it's always the key piece is that you're involved in, in the process for an IEP and a 504. Um, but the IEP is a lot more specialized and we um, might need to change how we're presenting some of the instruction and change how we're teaching a little bit for them to to thrive and, and make um, progress on those individualized goals. Mm -hmm. So a follow-up question I know a lot of parents have is um, <clears throat> there's a misconception that you go to your teacher and you say, I'd like a five, uh, I'd like an IEP, please. And we know that we have to go through the evaluation process and so on. But what about a 504? Do you also have to go through the evaluation process or is that something that the school can maybe more informally put in place? Yes. So the, it's, the evaluation process looks a little bit different, but yes, it is still something that the parent does need to formally request. So going back to kind of what Maria was saying earlier, we need to put it in writing, whether it is the actual physical letter or an email making that that request. And you might explicitly ask, you know, I would like to kind of review for potential, you know, accommodations in a 504 plan. Um, Sometimes if your child already has a diagnosis, for example, of ADHD, a medical diagnosis of ADHD, if you as a parent want to disclose that information and provide that information to the school, sometimes that really does help the process um, in accessing a 504 plan. A lot of that stuff's already um, done in terms of the assessment. And so the school team is is really taking all of those reports and, and having that be a part of their their evaluation process. So that just really helps things move along. Got it. Great. Awesome. Good. What a good breakdown. It's nice to kind of look at the two and because I get asked all the time from parents, like, where do I start? Like, do I start with an IEP? Do I start with a 504? Can I have both? Like, what is this? So it's, it's nice that you you broke it down for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would do just something came to mind when you were just talking about that. Sometimes kids who have an IEP and who have been doing well might move from an IEP to a 504 plan right? And doing it really well. This is a good thing. Um, okay. And so sometimes if that occurs, they'll already use the evaluation that they've done with an IEP to then create a 504 plan. Um, so I just wanted to mention that that sometimes mm -hmm. it can go the other way around, right? We're yeah, yeah. Right. One other interesting thing um, about the 504 and the IEP is that they actually fall under two different um, under federal laws. So IEP falls under Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and then 504 falls under Americans with Disabilities Act. So the 504 actually will carry over 
um, as the child ages out of school. So they're really helpful for accessing accommodations within college or university or even the workplace. So um, it's not to deter you like, oh, we should go 504 because they can have it for the rest of their life. Obviously, whatever is appropriate for your child's needs. Um, but the 504 is really nice to be able to document the accommodations that allow them to access the environment around them. So it's just something to keep in mind moving forward with that. I didn't know that. That's good. To know. I know. I was just going to say that's incredibly helpful because all the time we get questions that, you know, parents say, hey, okay, the second my child gets out of or they age out of that, you know, the IEP, right, they age out of that, what's next? And so it's kind of nice to know that, well, the 504, at least, if they had one, could continue. So that's really good information to have. Great. Yeah. 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 So I know we talked before about kind of the evaluation process and and how do we know where to do that? Do we do that privately or through the school? And so a similar question might be when kids get resources or services in the school, like private or like therapy, for example, occupational therapy, speech therapy in the school, what is the difference between that that therapy outside of the school? So the difference really between like private private therapy and school therapy, and then can they have both? Should they have both? So Maybe, Maria, if you could walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So, um, yes, they can have both. So we'll, <laughs> we'll just answer that one right right out of the gate. Um, well, therapy is really designed, and, and this is important to kind of keep in the front of our minds here, school therapy is really important to help the learner access their school environment. So we want to think about um, how are they accessing the information that's presented in instruction from the teacher. How are they able to communicate either verbally or through written communication or another mode of communication if they use um, an ancillary communication device, something like that? How do they access the school environment? Do they need help going up and down the stairs? Can they get out onto the playground by themselves? Can they carry their lunch tray in the cafeteria on their own? The school-based services are really designed to help access the environment. Um, as well as those, those academic services. So we talked a little bit about like if you qualified for special education services for academic needs, you would receive specially designed instruction to help you with learning to read or learning to write or learning to do math. Um, mm -hmm. it, the other you know kind of thing to keep in mind too that's really cool um, for for school therapies is that the auxiliary service providers, those, those special service providers, can write both direct time into the IEP, so time that they're working with your child directly, whether it's in a small group or one-on-one, -on -one, but they also can write um, what's called consultation time into the IEP where they will work with the child's teachers or their mm -hmm. paraprofessionals to make sure they know how to kind of generalize what they're working on in their direct sessions. So mm -hmm. um, kind of how in-school therapy or services work. Um, versus outside outside services are, are generally, um, I like to think of them as sort of like life skills based. Like how does the child access the world around them, like in their home, in their community, um, going to the store, going to, uh, you know, if they love to go rock climbing, how how do we make sure that they can access all the things that are part of their, their world outside of school? Because it's, mm -hmm. life is so much more than that. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, thinking about how families can support them. Family training is a big part of, of outside therapies, uh, making sure that families know how to prompt or how to, how to make sure to um, help the child hold a fork or something like that. Mm -hmm. So kind of thinking about it in two different senses of like in that way. Um, I also just really like to encourage schools to complete what's called a release of information. Each district might call it something different, but 
have the parents, you, the parents, sign um, some sort of document. The schools usually have an official form that allows us to talk between school and outside therapists because there is crossover. And, you know, I work with a lot of outside ABA providers. I don't want to replicate mm-hmm. something or not replicate something and confuse the child. And, and like, mm-hmm. well, we do this right. at school and we don't do this at home um, or in your therapy. So the release of information, we all want to be collaborative. We all want what's best for kids. So if you don't have a release of information signed for your school to talk with your outside providers, if you're comfortable with it, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Oh, what a good breakdown. That's such a good way of looking at it. It sounds so simple in my mind now, but but it, before it felt so complex, right? Like school therapy versus private therapy. Do they do the same thing? And I just, I love the way that you broke that up. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. I like the way of looking at that. Awesome. So let's actually get into, we've got just a couple more. And we kind of in that same theme of private versus public, we're actually going to talk about schools now. This is a common question that comes up. Um, so for uh, Maria, maybe you could talk a little bit about services in the private school and charter schools and how that might differ from the public school system that we've been talking about um, thus far. Sure, sure. Well, school school choice is a great thing. We Public school is not the best fit for every family. Charter schools aren't the best fit for every family. So it's it's really lovely that families have the ability to say this is what where we want our kids to go. Um, I'll start with private schools because they're maybe a little bit easier. Um, so private schools um, are not required to provide special education services. So if your child has an IEP or requires special education services, they may not get them through through their private school. Um, but a lot of private schools will have what's called a, have a like a service plan or a support plan. So this we know that this is what this child needs, but they're not legally obligated to like a public school is. Um, on the flip side, though, private schools generally fall under what's called like the administrative unit of a school district. And that's a really loose term for like, it could be your school district, it could be regional, it could be state, just depending on where you live. And they typically um, work with the school district that's nearest to them on some consulting, like what do services look like for a child who has autism sector disorder, or we have a child with ADHD in our school, we're not sure how to help them with attending and focusing. Um, So they are often in, in communication with their local school district about those needs um as they as they arise um similarly a lot of private schools will say we you know your child qualifies for speech services we don't have a speech language pathologist on staff um and the public school may just depending on on funding and sort of how the local governance works they can go to their local public school and get that that speech therapy if the parents opt into. A lot of parents who opt for private school opt not to access public services. So um, completely your choice as a parent. If you chose public private school, you have made lots of choices in terms of like what you're looking your child's education to be like and public mm-hmm. education services may not be it. Um, charter schools are a little different um, because they fall under the umbrella of um, being con- locally controlled by public school districts. So they are typically lottery-based or application-based. So um, families apply to them and are, are selected to enroll in the in the charter schools. And, and, and just one like caveat is that it is, it's illegal for a, a charter school to deny your application. If you check on there, my child has an IEP and they say, oh, sorry, we can't accept a child with an IEP or a 504. Um, they, that can't be the reason why they, they don't accept your application. Um, and, the, and similarly, they can't tell you 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 have to unenroll from their school because your child has too many needs that they can't meet. So, 
um, something really important for parents to keep in mind because it does come up and it's you know kind of makes you feel not very happy yeah um fair yeah it's not fair um so charter schools generally do have special education teachers on staff they may not have um you know a ton like an elementary or middle or high school does that's a public school but they might have one or two some charter schools that i work with have a full special education department it just kind of depends on what the model is of their charter school and what what needs their population generally has um ieps are still recognized and, and honored and upheld as a legal document within charter schools um, parents are still entitled to what's called due process which is the sort of checks and balances accountability that holds parents and schools accountable to what's in the, the iep so um, it's just important when you're, if you're looking at charter schools to, or private schools to ask, like, what's your model? How do you teach mm-hmm. kids? What are your, what are your discipline procedures? If you notice a child struggling, what, what supports do you put into action? And as we always say, just be an informed consumer and ask those questions because you know your child best, you know how they might behave or act at school or what needs they have. So the school won't know until, um, you know, maybe something has happened. So if you can let them know ahead of time. Uh, it's it's in everyone's best interest so that we can make sure that your child's needs are being met appropriately from day one. Yeah, and there's just one other thing I wanted to add in terms of, because um, we've talked about kind of transition in terms of if your child is in a private school um, and you're not quite sure, you know, you want to see how this next year goes, right? Um, you can still go ahead and access um, an educational evaluation through your public school have that kind of ready, if you will, if you decide that maybe hmm, this might not be the right fit. We've 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 been doing this for the last six months or a year. We're we're going to transition to the public school next year. That's already in place for you. So again, it's just kind of helping with that continuity um, and support based on the decisions that you're going to make that are best for your kiddo. Mm, that's good to yeah. know too. That's a good call out. Right. I was just going to say, I was going to say exactly that, that like two things I'm hearing. One, we want to be as proactive as we can with these things, because of course they take time. And then two, we want to ask questions to make sure we're making informed decisions based on this, each individual school and the process. So, right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I know we've been talking um, about all the good things that of the, the process, right? But every now and then, of course, we get asked from families, well, what about when things aren't really going as smoothly as we would like them to go or we're not we're not getting the support that we need? So, Jen, if you could maybe walk us through a little bit, like what can parents do if they're not getting the support that they need or maybe the services that they're requesting are not granted? They write that letter and then maybe the school is saying, well, no. Uh, we're not seeing this. So walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the first place to start is saying that you are your child's best advocate. Um, and when we start thinking about how, you know, how do we continue to get that support when we're not quite sure which direction to go or how to get our questions answered, um, definitely, I think, starting with understanding your rights uh, is a good place to start. Your case manager, your school, um, they are required to provide you your your procedural safeguards, your rights. Um, you also uh, can access your parent training center, your state parent training center. So if you go to parentcenterhub.org, um, that's the main website where you can go and select your state and kind of find based on your regional local area where your parent local parent training center is um, to access more information and resources. And also you might consider a special education advocate. Um, Sometimes parents um, 
because there's a lot going on, uh, you know, in terms of different professionals that you're working with and different things that you need to think about. Um, so sometimes working with a special education advocate to answer some of those questions, help you wear that hat a little bit so you can wear the parent hat um, while the, the special education advocate might wear the legal hat a little bit more for you and you can bounce off questions. Um, a lot of things that parents don't realize about a special education advocate too is that you can have them attend an IEP meeting with you, for example, just for additional support. Um, but yeah, those are a couple of places places to start in terms of accessing more information and resources. Oh, that's great. And something that I'll add that we always, we've probably mentioned this on most of our podcasts, but understood.org uh, is another really good resource where it has all kinds of this, this, this information. And it also has really cool roadmaps that they've created that really walk you through this whole process. So a nice visual for you visual learners <laughs> like myself, um, if you need that. So definitely check that out. Yeah, it's a good one. So we are at our last question, and this is for both of you. Um, you know, in general, how can we advocate? How can we support our kids and get really involved in their education? Kind of what are your main uh, points of advice for, for families? Yeah, I think the biggest one, which I think we've echoed throughout this whole podcast, is just that relationship development with your child's teacher and your child's local school. So, um, you know, depending on their age, if they're in middle school or high school, it might be more than one teacher. Um, but just keeping that dialogue open, um, whether it be, you know, through an email, um, those check-ins, just kind of seeing how your kid is doing, just having that ongoing collaboration um, with your with your teacher, your, your local principal. Um, other things, too, on the home front, uh, I always talk about having kind of, especially for older kids, kind of that scheduled time. Where you're checking in um uh and the reason i say scheduled especially for our trains and teens is that you don't they don't want to feel micromanaged like yes mom i have my homework done or yes i have good grades right now but it's uh it's kind of scheduling that checking in so they know it's coming up and it doesn't randomly happen at nine o'clock on a tuesday night right mm -hmm. um for your younger kiddos you know having a homework station and i always suggest having that be um, somewhere in a central location in the home versus like in their room. Um, just because you as a parent can reinforce really positive learning behaviors. Oh, I love how you got started on your homework right away, right? Oh, I love how you're staying on task and paying, you know, getting your math homework done. It gives you that ability to kind of reinforce those those learning behaviors and also kind of keep an eye on, on how they're doing. <laughs> um, but it just gives you an opportunity to do that versus if they were in their room, for example, um, completing their homework, it, it might be a little bit harder to do that. So it's one couple of ideas. Maria, I don't know if you have any other tidbits there. Yeah, I love those. I think um, all, all super important. I, I would also encourage parents as you can and, and if your schedule allows to be part of the school community. I'm always amazed that you parents who, who might attend just one school event um, and are like, oh my gosh, my kid would love being part of this cheerleading squad and letting the child's teacher know, like, how does, how does my kid get involved with that? Because your kid may not know how to access the, the cheerleading activity. So being part of the school community um, is a great way to just see what's available and also put names and faces together. Um, if your child comes home talking about their favorite person, you're like, I had no idea that that's who that individual was. And now I, I know and have that context of who this person is. Um, and as we've reiterated so many times, you know your child best. So it is okay to be their voice, especially 
in the school system um, and as you're trying to figure out what is best for them and how they're going to be successful in school. Um, and I like I sometimes share with parents, this is um, this is a lot. It's like having a full time job with some really not on the great, great on the job training. So it's OK to ask questions and to advocate for your child and their needs. And as with anything in life, presume positive intent from those around you. And I think educators want what's best for your child. They're in that field for a reason, too. So really understanding that, um, you know, they might be telling you no, or we need to go about it this way. And it's not because they don't like you. They don't like your child. There's just processes to keep things efficient. So um, accessing more information and asking questions like, well, why do we have to wait? Why do we have to do it this way? And if you do feel like it's becoming like you're not being heard, it's a great time to reach out to those those external resources or, or do some outside research on your own to figure out like what else is there available. So, oh, so good. I love how you said presume positivity of those around you. I feel like I'm going to write that down and like put it right there. So I can see it every day because I just love the way you said that. It's, it's a so good reminder. Important. Yeah, it's a good reminder too, just because this can be stressful. There is a lot to know and to understand. And and especially if you're starting from, you know, a, an early phase. Um, and so it is nice to, I, I like how you're, you know, continuing to remind us this is the lens that we can look through this in. And, you know, everyone is here because they want to support. And um, yeah, so these are it's good information and good reminders. Thank you guys mm -hmm. so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you guys for having us. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our 33rd episode of Behaviorally Speaking. On our next episode, we will be discussing stress management. So tune into that one. And until then, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. You've been listening to Behaviorally Speaking with Angela Nelson and Kristen Bondi, brought to you by Rethink Care. Find out more at RethinkCare.com. You can find past podcast episodes under the resource tab. We also invite you to subscribe, follow, like, and leave us feedback wherever you listen to podcasts. Your feedback helps us prepare topics and content for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day.